Let's open up our Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 1. Tonight we begin a study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is actually a very interesting letter for us to consider. It's interesting on many different levels. Uh, First of all, it's fascinating to see the very warm connection that the Apostle Paul had with the church in Thessalonica. Uh, For example, uh, you see it in this first chapter that we'll take a look at, just the very warm, cordial relationship that Paul had with this church. But there's another thing for us to consider because it also touches on some very interesting areas of doctrine, in particular uh, doctrines regarding the things of the last times, or eschatology as it's sometimes said. And so we'll discuss that later on as we continue in in our study through the book. But tonight we just want to consider the first chapter of this first letter. And as we come to it, we should remind ourselves that this may very well be, we can't say for certain, but it may very well be the first epistle or letter that Paul wrote to a church that is preserved for us in the New Testament. And that makes it a little bit special to us, right? I mean, you think about Paul's great concern for all of these churches that he planted in different places. And as he had a great concern for those churches and great missionary zeal and endeavor, he would go there and labor there, and sometimes he would be there for a short time, sometimes he would be there for a long time. In the case of the church at Thessalonica, he was there for a short time. Uh, But nevertheless, when he left the city, he didn't leave his care for them behind. He took it with them, and he cared for them. And, And this letter is an expression of Paul's love and care for the church at Thessalonica. So, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first word of the letter is Paul's own name. Of course, that was the custom in those days. When you were writing a letter, you would begin with your own name, putting it first. You know, in most letter-writing customs today, you put the Uh, recipient's letter first, you know, dear so-and-so, and and you write to them, and then you save your name for the very last in the letter, which is a little bit strange, because the person has to read through the whole letter before they find out who it is who's writing to them. In the ancient world, they had a much better way of organizing it. They'd start right off with saying who it was writing the letter, and that's why Paul begins. And I just can't help but think that as Paul... Well, you know, I may use the expression occasionally as we make our way through the book of First Thessalonians, speaking about Paul writing, speaking about Paul putting his, his pen to the parchment. We do understand that actually Paul, in all likelihood, dictated this letter, that there was a scribe, or the fancy word is an amunensis, who would sit there and write out what Paul wrote, basically a secretary or a scribe who would record what Paul spoke verbally in this letter. But as Paul wrote this letter, I mean, it's wonderful to think he's taking advantage of a form of technology that they had in that day to extend his reach in ministry beyond his immediate presence. I mean, Paul was not immediately with the Thessalonian Christians, yet he could still have an influence with them from a distance. And Paul took use of this technology that he had in his day. He could write it down using a pen, using a piece of parchment or the ancient equivalent of paper, sending it with a courier, and it would get there. And think about it. They could have the heart of Paul. They could have the message of Paul. They could have the teaching of Paul uh, across many, many hundreds of miles or kilometers in distance in order to make this point. Uh, Paul's ministry could extend beyond his own physical boundaries. And I just think uh, what gets me excited about thinking is how many more opportunities God has given us for that kind of ministry today. 
I mean, today, ministry can be extended beyond the individual uh, by means of television or radio or telephone or recording or uh, over the internet or over writing, over book. I mean, you just go on and on and on. It's exciting to think that Paul took advantage of such technologies himself. But he writes, Paul, this amazing man, this apostle of God, but he didn't work by himself. That's why in the very first words of the book, we read Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You see, wherever Paul could, he worked with a team. And here Paul mentions the men he worked with. Uh, Silvanus is the first one mentioned. Now, this is just another way of saying the name Silas. The, the name Silvanus may sound a little foreign to you, but you may remember the name Silas from the book of Acts. Because Silas was a long and experienced companion of Paul. He traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey, and he was imprisoned and set free with Paul in the Philippian jail. When Paul first came to Thessalonica, Silas came with him. That's recorded for us in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, the Thessalonians knew who Silvanus or Silas was, and that's why Paul says, hey, it's myself and Silas writing this letter, or Silvanus, and then the next person in there, you notice it was Timothy. Now, Timothy was a resident of Lystra. That was a city in the province of Galatia. Now, Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and from his youth, he learned the scriptures from both his mother and his grandmother. Timothy was a very trusted companion and associate of Paul, and he accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys. Paul had sent Timothy to the Thessalonians on a previous occasion. We find that out in chapter 3, verse 2 of this letter. So they knew who Timothy was, they knew who Silas was, and, of course, they knew who Paul was because Paul was the person who founded the church in Thessalonica, which, of course, was one of the first churches founded in Europe. When Paul came across the water over to the continent of Europe, he first came to Philippi. But after Philippi, he came to Thessalonica. And so he writes here, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, we're still in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, again, Paul himself founded this church on his second missionary journey. And if you want to write a little reference in your Bible, it's Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, Paul was in the city of Thessalonica only a short time because he was forced out of the city by enemies of the gospel. Yet, I want you to notice here, even though Paul the apostle was kicked out of the city, the church of the Thessalonians remained. It was alive. It was active. And it came out of Paul's very deep concern for this young church that he was suddenly compelled to write this letter. You see, on Paul's second missionary journey, he was imprisoned in Philippi, and then he was miraculously set free from jail. You, you perhaps remember some of those circumstances, the great earthquake that Paul, that Paul sent, God sent, to Paul and Silas when they were in prison, and the chains fell from their arms, and the, the Philippian jailer said, you know, what must I do to be saved? And it's just this wonderful occasion here where God miraculously set Paul and Silas free from their prison in Philippi. Well, what was their reward for being miraculously freed from jail? They were kicked out of the city of Philippi. Then they came to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a prosperous capital city of the province of Macedonia, which is northern Greece. And it was located on a very famous road called the Ignatian Way. Now, catch this. How long was Paul in Thessalonica? He was there for only three 
weekends of prosperous ministry. And after three weekends of prosperous ministry, you'll find that reference in Acts chapter 17, verse 2. After those only three weekends, he was forced to flee from an angry mob. After Thessalonica, he went to Berea. And there he enjoyed several weeks of ministry, but he was soon driven out by the same angry mob that had driven him out of Thessalonica. His next stop was Athens. And at Athens, he preached a very good sermon that had mixed results. And after Athens, he went to Corinth. And by the time he came to Corinth, and I'm reading to you now from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that he was in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Well, you can just imagine why. Imprisoned in Philippi and kicked out of the city. Uh, Kicked out of the city of Thessalonica. Kicked out of the city of Berea. Goes to Athens. Good sermon. Not very good results. Goes to Corinth, which was a, a terribly sinful and degraded city. And as he gets there again, I'll read it again. It says that he was in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And at this point of the second missionary journey, it seemed like Paul was a very discouraged missionary. But while in Corinth, it's likely that Paul was greatly concerned about the churches that he had just founded. And he wondered about how they were doing, right? He thought about the previous weeks. How were they doing? Now, he founded no church in Athens, but, but how were they doing there in Thessalonica? How were they doing in Berea? How were they doing in Philippi? And while he was at Corinth, Silas and Timothy came to him from Thessalonica with great words or great news. And the news there was Paul, the church in Thessalonica is doing great. They're strong. And Paul probably became so excited by this that he dashed off this letter to the Thessalonians, probably, again, as I said before, probably his first letter to any church. He wrote it just a few months after he had established the church in Thessalonica. So after writing and sending this letter, Paul enjoyed a sustained and fruitful ministry in Corinth, and then he eventually returned to the Thessalonians. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. I want to tell you that when Paul was in Corinth as such a discouraged missionary, I think just getting the news from Timothy and Silas about the strength and the vitality and the depth of the Thessalonian church, it encouraged Paul so much that it gave him a renewed vision for the discouraging place that he was in right then. And that began what I believe to be the, the really fruitful and prosperous time in Paul's ministry at Corinth. And so Paul... Uh, obviously, because of this letter, we know that Paul found it important. Might I say, Paul found it even essential to organize these young converts into a group of mutual interest, of mutual care and fellowship. Paul just didn't leave behind people and say, well, I hope things go great. No, he said, you've got to organize together in in groups. You've got to become a church a body, a community, an association. You need to have some kind of local organization, not necessarily with a sophisticated hierarchy and all the rest of it. That's not what we're talking about. But but we know that Paul just didn't leave the believers, wave happy trails to you, and just say, well, I hope things go well with you. No, he wanted to leave behind not merely individual Christians. He wanted to leave behind churches, communities of the body of Christ. This letter proves that just in that first line to the church of the Thessalonians 
in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he continues on in his greeting there in verse 1. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul brought this very customary greeting to the Thessalonian Christians. He hailed them in the grace and in the peace of God the Father. Now, um, grace is very much connected to sort of the, the customary greeting that they would use in the Greek world. They would say something very much like that, well, grace to you, you know, gracious good morning or that kind of thing. You get the idea. Whereas in the Jewish world, they would come and use the greeting uh, shalom. And so when he says grace to you and peace, he's combining these two greetings, one from the Greek world and one from the Jewish world. And so he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have to say, I don't want to get too intricate with you with sort of the the details of Greek grammar, the, the ancient language that Paul wrote in, which is sort of an ancient version of the modern Greek language. Biblical Greek and modern Greek are not exactly the same. But biblical Greek, that this language that Paul wrote in, the, the, the grammar of it at this point tells us that Paul believed that Jesus Christ and God the Father were equal because he puts both of them under the same phrasing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the way that the Greek uh, sentence is constructed, it indicates for us that Paul looked at them right at the very beginning there as being equal in their status. So, uh, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Isn't that a beautiful way to start the letter? We give thanks to God always for you. Let me put it to you this way. When Paul thought about the Thessalonians, his heart was filled with gratitude. It, it made him happy and thankful to think about the Thessalonians. You see, Paul started the church in Thessalonica under less than ideal circumstances. He was run out of town after only three weekends with them. I'm sure that's not what Paul wanted, right? I'm sure Paul would have preferred to stay more than three weekends in Thessalonica. Nevertheless, he had to leave suddenly. Yet the church was still strong and full of life. You know what encouraged Paul about that? It was evidence to him that the work going on among the Thessalonians was the work of God and it was not the work of Paul, right? I mean, if the Christians would have just died away, if they would have lost their faith, if they would have been quickly sucked into one of the strange mystery religions that were popular in that part of the world at that time, Paul would have had reason to believe, well, maybe they weren't genuinely converted. Maybe it was never a work of God at all. But because they continued on, it made Paul very happy and thankful because it testified to him that it was, in fact, the word of God. And then he says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Uh, plainly put, Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. He prayed for people and he prayed for churches. And I love how he states it here because it's so down to earth and it sort of speaks to my own heart. Paul said, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul wasn't going to look at the Thessalonians and write to them and say, you know, I pray for you guys three hours a day. Because it wasn't true. 
But Paul didn't spend an extended season of prayer for the Thessalonians and for other Christians he knew and and for other uh, churches that he had founded every day. But what he did do was he made mention of them in prayer. It wasn't necessarily a long time of intercession. He often simply made mention of a church or a person in prayer. We see that in Romans 1.9, in Ephesians 1.16, and in Philemon 1.4. And so, by the way, when he says there, we give thanks God to God for you, always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, Paul prayed together with Silvanus or Silas and Timothy for this church in Thessalonica. So Paul was excited to pray for them, making mention in their prayers. Verse 3, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, Paul, in his thinking about the Thessalonian Christians, there were certain things about those Christians that Paul simply could not forget. He, he always remembered certain things. And what was it that he remembered? Well, the things that he remembered made him thankful, right? Because he remembered them and it made him thankful. And then he goes on to say the three things were your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So catch the connection between verses 2 and 3. When he remembered these things, that was the source of his gratitude or his thanksgiving. You see, Paul's gratitude did not come because all the Christians in Thessalonica uh, thought so highly of him. Later, Paul used a whole chapter to defend himself and his ministry against slander and false accusations that were going around about him uh, among the Thessalonians. And so Paul didn't say, oh, I'm so thankful because you all think I'm such a wonderful person. They didn't all think he was such a wonderful person. Nor was Paul thankful because the Thessalonians were morally pure in every one of them. You see, later in the letter, Paul will strongly warn them against the failings in regard to sexual impurity. And Paul's gratitude did not come because the Thessalonian Christians were completely accurate in all of their doctrine. He had to correct some of their wrong ideas in that area as well. So I want you to notice this. There were people gossiping and backbiting about the Apostle Paul there. There were some people there who were at least involved in some level in sexual immorality. And there were also some dangerous doctrines. If they weren't being taught, they weren't, you know, they were near the surface if they weren't on the surface. Nevertheless, Paul could say, despite all of that, I am thankful for the work of God among the Thessalonians. Why? Look at it again, verses 3 and 4. For your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, despite the problems... Paul was grateful for the Thessalonians because there was an undeniable work of the Holy Spirit and a marvelous change in their lives. The three great Christian virtues, you know them, right? Faith, hope, and love. Those three great Christian virtues were present in the Thessalonian Christians. And this is for the first time, at least chronologically, right? 
I mean, look, I know 1 Corinthians appears in your Bible before 1 Thessalonians, but don't get confused. 1 Thessalonians was written before 1 Corinthians. And I know in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, he has this marvelous passage. You know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And it's a beautiful passage, and people like to read it in their weddings, and it's very memorable, and all the rest of it. But, but you should remember, he wrote this letter first. This is the first time chronologically in Paul's writings where we have that famous triad or trinity of faith, hope, and love. But I want you to notice, Paul's stress here is not on those virtues alone, but on what those virtues produce in our Christian life. So what do they produce? Look at it here. Their faith produced what? Work. Isn't that great? Your work of faith. Faith in the life of the Thessalonians produced work. And by the way, if you've ever read the book of James, you know that that's what true faith produces, doesn't it? True faith produces work. True faith produces somebody who goes out and does something for Jesus Christ. And so their faith produced work. What did their love produce? You see it right there. Your labor of love. Their love produced labor. Now, there's two different ancient Greek words that could be translated work, ergon and kopos. Ergon is work that might be sort of pleasant and stimulating. Kopos implies toil that is strenuous and sweat-producing. You can imagine which one he used here. It was labor. It was hard-working labor. So their faith produced work, their love produced labor, and then finally, their hope produced patience. That patience is the long-suffering endurance needed not only to survive hard times, but to triumph through them. Now, when I read patience, I don't know what particular Bible version you have in front of you. I'm teaching from the New King James Version. Some translations, I think, have that word translated a little bit better. They translate it endurance. And I think that endurance is a better word than patience there. Because when you and I hear the word patience, it sounds like a very passive word. What's patience? Patience is the ability that will enable me to not get frustrated when I'm sitting at the red light for what seems to be five minutes. Patience is the ability that enables me to not get upset when I'm in the traffic jam. Patience is the the quality within me that can endure it when I have to go to the doctor and I sit in the waiting room for two hours. Patience helps me at that moment. But that isn't the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. It's not so much the patience to sit back and wait and do nothing. It's more endurance to endure through a difficult time. It's more the quality you need, not for a doctor's waiting room. It's the kind of quality you need to finish a marathon. That's what Paul was thankful for in the lives of the Thessalonians. He said, do you see this? Paul, yes, he mentions these three great Christian virtues. There's no doubt about it. Faith, hope, love. But his focus is on what they produce. And faith produces work, love produces labor, and hope produces patience. Going on here, knowing, uh, he goes on, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. You see, Paul reminded them that God loved them. Do you see that? Knowing, beloved brethren, brethren who are loved by God, you are loved by God and you are chosen by God. That's election. Beloved brethren, 
elected or chosen by God. Do you get that idea? Paul wanted them to know two things. You're loved by God and you're chosen by God. You know, the two really go together. When you love somebody, you choose them, don't you? If you want to express your love for somebody, you choose them. And so here, Paul wants them to know you are truly loved by God. Now, you should know something about that phrase, because in particular, at least some proportion of the church at Thessalonica was made up of Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So they were familiar with Jewish writings, with Jewish literature, with Jewish thinking. And in Jewish thinking, that phrase, beloved by God, was a phrase that the Jews applied only to the supremely great men in their history, men like Moses and Solomon and to the nation of Israel itself. Now, Paul says, you are beloved by God. God loves you as much as he loves Moses. God loves you as much as he loves Solomon. He's showing them what a great heritage they have in Jesus Christ. Now, the following verses, the verses that follow, verses 3 and 4, are going to explain why Paul was so confident saying, knowing your election. Wouldn't you say, isn't that sort of a risky thing to say? Would you walk up to a stranger and they say, well, I'm a Christian and you don't know anything about their life. And you say, you know what? I know that you're chosen by God. You, you would feel a little cautious in saying that. But yet Paul was not being foolish in explaining that. There were definite signs that Paul could see in the lives of the Thessalonians that said, these Thessalonians are God's elect. So how do you know if you're one of God's elect? Well, look at the signs that we're going to see in the following passages. So let's take a look at some of these signs that they see. First of all, the gospel came to them in power. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. I want you to notice this. This is a great, great truth. One evidence of election is that the word of God comes to you in power. When you hear the word of God, it makes an impact on your life. That's how it happened for the Thessalonians. And that was one reason why Paul could say, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So what was it that came to him? Look again at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. The gospel is not a matter of mere words. You see, in our modern culture, there's an overflow of information. There's an overflow of entertainment that often only amounts to mere words. Words, words, words. And I tell you what, it has gotten about one million times worse in our society in the last 20 years since the emergence of the Internet. Can you think of all the millions of people all around the world typing, typing, typing on their keyboards, posting it on the internet, this blog, this website, this MySpace, this Facebook, whatever you want to call it, they're all putting words, 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 words. Sometimes people just get sick of words. But you need to understand that the gospel is more than mere words. It also has power. I would say, if the gospel is a matter of just mere words, then you could make the argument, why waste it? Why do we need more words? But it's not just words, it's power. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. You see, the message of Jesus Christ has power. 
It has power for miracles. It has power for wonderful signs from God. And best of all, it has the power to change minds, hearts, and lives. Now listen, I rejoice when I see the miracle working power of God. I rejoice when I see people miraculously healed or or other wonderful signs and evidences of the moving of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I think you and I would have to agree if we thought about it soberly just for a moment that the greatest miracle of all is to change the human heart, is to take a man or a woman who was an utter racist, who despised people, of other races and thought that they were subhuman and Jesus Christ comes into their life and transforms them and suddenly their heart is filled with love towards that other person. That is an absolutely miraculous change because I'll tell you, if God heals a person from cancer, the cancer itself doesn't resist the healing power of God. It just gets acted upon by it. But, but, but that man's fleshly nature, that man's Adamic or old nature, it stands in him and it resists the power of God. But God overcomes it. That change in life is evidence of this wonderful power of God. So not just power, but he says here, verse 5, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. It's a message by the Holy Spirit, a living person who works within the hearts of the hearers to convict and to comfort and to instruct. You see, if the preacher alone is speaking, then it's a matter of word only. But if the Holy Spirit works through the word, then a great spiritual work is accomplished. You see, that's what's wonderful about teaching the Bible in what you might call anointed exposition where you have an anointing from God, you're in the flow, you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is present there to speak His Word into the hearts of the people. And it's not merely the words that come out of the mouth of the speaker or the teacher or the preacher, whatever you would want to call Him. No, it's the work of the Holy Spirit there. You see, we sometimes think too little about the spiritual operations of the Word of God. There is a spiritual work of God's Word that goes far beyond the basic educational value of learning the Bible. I mean, you understand that, right? That that it's possible for someone to know the Bible forwards and backwards. It's possible for somebody to virtually memorize the entire New Testament, and yet, nevertheless, they have not encountered the spiritual power of the Bible, and their life is not therefore transformed. And so there is a spiritual operation of the Word of God. It, It comes in power and in the Holy Spirit, and then if you notice it there, and in much assurance. That's a message given in much assurance. I think you can describe that in two ways. First of all, it describes the preacher who really believes what he preaches. You you know, when you present God's word, could I just say plainly, to those of you who have any kind of desire or aspiration to teaching, you should preach it as if you believe it. You should preach it as if you are assured of it yourself. Now, I'm not trying to say that you should put on an act. I'm not trying to say that you should be a phony, that you should act as if you believe it, if you do not. No, but you should go up and teach what you are persuaded of. You should present it in much assurance. There's no substitute for that assurance. And if a preacher doesn't have it, he should stay out of the pulpit. But it's not merely referring to the assurance that the preacher has in preaching it It also refers to the assurance that it produces in the heart of those who hear and are underneath the power and the spiritual operation of the Word of God. So look, 
How can you know if you are one of God's elect? Well, first of all, you can know if the gospel comes to you in power. You can know if the gospel came to you in the Holy Spirit. You can know if the gospel came to you in assurance, if there was an assurance in your own heart as you responded to the message of the gospel. And then what's the next thing? Look at verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Right off, I'd say that's a third evidence that you're elect. Not only have you received the word of God in um, uh, power and in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Secondly, not only have you received it in much assurance within yourself, but thirdly, you actually became a follower of the Lord. You, you wanted to be like Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that simple? How, how do you know the elect? Well, they want to be like Jesus. They, they want to be followers, as Paul says, of us and of the Lord. I want you to notice this. When he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, it, it means that they stopped following other things, right? Have you, ever, you can't follow two things at the same time, can you? You know, here goes one path on one way. Here goes a path on another way. You're going to follow one of those two paths. You you can't follow them both at the same time. They stopped following other things, but they followed after Paul and the Lord. Now, Paul says, notice here, that it was a good thing for the Thessalonians to follow him. And he wasn't shy about saying, follow me, because Paul knew where he was going. I think that this is an element sorely lacking in much of Christianity today. We're so terrified of telling people, follow me as I follow the Lord. But it's something that we should actually be very free with telling people. And and I would say that it points to the great need and the great importance of personal discipleship. There was a a manner or an element or, or a way in which Paul personally led these Thessalonian Christians in their spiritual life. They could see his life and they were invited to learn from his example. It wasn't just that they learned from his teaching, but they saw him as he followed the Lord. And I would say Paul repeated this theme several times. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Or how about 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? He says, imitate me, just as I saw imitate Christ. You see, that was Paul's heart. He knew he wasn't perfect, but he knew that he was following Jesus. And he said, well, I'm going in the right direction. You may as well follow me as well, because you can go in the right direction also. You became followers of us and of the Lord. But then notice the next part of the verse. It makes it even more precious. Having received the word in much affliction. The Thessalonian Christians distinguished themselves because they received the word even in much affliction. The message that they heard came with adversity, yet they received it and Paul thanked God because of it. You know, this ancient Greek word that's translated affliction here, you know what it really means outside of the Bible, you know, in its normal usage in the ancient Greek language? It means pressure. It means stress. It means something pressing down on another thing. He said, you faced a lot of stress, a lot of pressure when you believed the Lord and when you followed after him. But he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with um, the agony of affliction in the, holy, in, the, in the life of following God. That's not what he says at the end of verse 6, is it? What is it? 
with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, you would think that those are two words that shouldn't go together in the same sentence, right? Affliction, or might I say, much affliction and joy. But it did for the Thessalonians, didn't it? When the Thessalonian Christians faced the affliction from receiving the word, they didn't just face it with a resigned fatalism. Que sera, sera. You know, it's just how it is in life. We all have our burden to bear. I guess that's, that's how it is. No, they faced it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to consider this. Not long before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas personally experienced the principle of having the joy of the Holy Spirit even in the presence of much affliction. Do you remember when they experienced that? It's when they sang in the Philippian jail. Despite their chains, despite their sufferings, they were an example of the same spirit to the Thessalonians. So is it any wonder that it continued after Paul left the Thessalonians? Now, how did they respond to this? Look at verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Isn't this a beautiful pattern? Man, I just look at this and I think this is beautiful, dynamic Christianity. First, Paul was an example to the Thessalonians, right? Then they were an example to other people. They became examples to others. That's exactly how the word of God, or the work of God, I should say, should happen. And they became examples, as it says here, to all in Macedonia and Achaia. Because the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia needed examples, and the Thessalonians supplied that need. And you know what is amazing about this? These people had only been Christians for a couple of months. This was only a short time. And yet they were already being examples. You know, as Christians, we always need other people who will show us how to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, we need to hear about how to follow Jesus. We do. But we don't need only to hear. We also need somebody to show us how to follow Jesus Christ. And so it's a beautiful thing. The Thessalonians saw Paul and his companions. They learned from their example, and then they became an example to other people. And again, I, I can't help but be blown away by the fact that this happened after they were walking with the Lord for only a few months. You know, I don't know where we get this in our head that, you know, um, you know, somehow if you've been a Christian for 10 years, you're still just a baby Christian. Sometimes I hear people talk like that. You know, well, you know, I've only been a believer for 10 years or something like that. And you, you look at this example of the, of the Thessalonians and it's convicting to us. Well, it should be convicting. All right, now, verses 8 through 10. This is how the Thessalonians re responded even more so. They, they responded, well, but they received the word of God. They, they um, became followers of the gospel. They, they became examples. And now they responded by sounding forth the word of God to other people. Look at it there, verse 8. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, this was part of the good examples that the Thessalonians were being. They were sounding forth 
the word of God. I love that phrase in the original Greek wording, the ancient Greek language that Paul wrote in. That word sounded forth or that phrase sounded forth means a loud ringing sound. It's like a trumpet blast going forth. That's how the word of God was. The work that God did among the Thessalonians became known all over the region and everyone talked about the changes. You see, Thessalonica was a cosmopolitan trading city. Good news from there could go out everywhere because people were coming and going in the city all of the time. And so the word of God went out. But notice, it wasn't just the word. Look at this again, verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. And then he says later on in verse 8, Your faith toward God has gone out. Do you see both of those things? Not only the word of the Lord, but also their faith. And this combination of the word of God going out, their faith going out, was so effective that Paul said, You Thessalonians are putting me out of business. I don't need to say anything. You know, there's going to be no need for apostles like me if everybody responds to the gospel like you Thessalonians because you guys just do it yourselves. You see, Paul pairs together two ideas. First, the word of the Lord sounded forth. And then second, their faith toward God has gone out. These two aspects are essential if a church is going to spread the gospel. First, Might I say this is pretty elementary? You need to have a message to spread. And that message needs to impact their own lives. Your, excuse me, he says, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. First the message comes to you, and then you sound it forth. But then second, you need the faith to go out, so that your faith towards God goes out in all the world. You see, listen, this is what he's telling us is that it's not only the preaching of the gospel that spreads the gospel, but it's the lives of God's people that spread the gospel. It's the word and the faith. I love this. If I haven't done it already, I need to to give you a quote here from Charles Spurgeon. He's describing what happened among the Thessalonians. He said, everybody asked, why, what has happened to these Thessalonians? These people have broken their idols. They worship one God. They trust in Jesus. They are no longer drunken, dishonest, impure, and contentious. Everybody talked about what had taken place among these converted people. Oh, for conversions, plentiful, clear, singular, and manifest, so that the word of God may sound out. Our converts are our best advertisements and arguments. Well, isn't that the truth? It was true among the Thessalonians, and it's true among us today. And Paul goes on to explain, again, here coming into verse 9, he says, um, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 9, he says, how you turned from God, uh, turned, excuse me, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You see, when the Thessalonians received the word of God from Paul, they responded to it by leaving their idols, and they gave themselves to serve the living and the true God. Their reception of the word and their faith in God was shown as true because they did something with the word of God. And so they served, they waited for Jesus from heaven, a true work of conversion had happened, as you see here 
indicating in the very last part of verse 10. He says here, well, no, excuse me, let me read starting here in the middle of verse 9. He says, and how you turn to God from idols to serve. I keep saying that. That's the second time tonight I said they turned from God. Please understand, I'm not trying to say that the Thessalonians turned from God. I'm just mixing up the words in my own mouth. They turned to God. All right, let me see if I can read this again properly. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I'm just going to introduce an idea to you here that we're going to talk about much later in this study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. How long was Paul with the Thessalonians? Three weekends. Just a couple of weeks, that was it. And yet he had already taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? They knew about the return of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to find out, they had actually a rather sophisticated knowledge of biblical prophecy. And Paul only spent a couple of weeks with them. In any way, Paul sees as great evidence of God's work, of their election, that, that the Thessalonians um, responded by sounding forth the word of the Lord, so much so that they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, and I want you to look at the last phrase of the chapter here, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I think there Paul is pointing to the very essence of salvation. He's saying, Jesus, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know what that tells us? It tells us that we are saved from something. Listen, uh, uh, what are you saved from? We talked about the word saved. What are you saved from? It's interesting, I can show you in the New Testament. The New Testament will tell you that you're saved from sin. Isn't that nice? It's good to be saved from sin. The the, the New Testament will tell you that you're saved from uh, the, the world. You're saved from this wicked generation. The New Testament will tell you that you're saved from the devil and from his power over you. We're saved from many things, but do you know what the most important thing is to be saved from? Look at it there at the end of verse 10. He tells you right there, the wrath to come, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are saved from the righteous wrath of God himself. This is what we need to understand. This is the greatest thing that we need to be saved from. The wrath, the judgment of God that we deserved. Now, later in this letter, we're going to see it in chapter 5, Paul used the expression, God did not appoint us to wrath. And when Paul uses that phrase later in the book of 1 Thessalonians, he uses it to refer to God's deliverance of his people in the context of the wrath to come upon the world in the last days. He may have the same idea in mind here. You see, you sort of in this technical way, wrath is a title for the period just before the Messiah's kingdom on earth, a period of time that many people refer to as the Great Tribulation. And as he says this here, who delivers us from the wrath to come, Paul may be mentioning this understanding of the rapture of the church and God delivering his people from the wrath that is to come. But look, understand this. Whether Paul means here the wrath of the great tribulation or, as he may very well also mean, he may have both ideas in mind. He may also be referring 
to the ultimate wrath of eternity, both of these must be urgently avoided. And that's what Jesus Christ gives us. He rescues us. Isn't it strange to think that what you need to be saved from is God himself? Because we, born in our own nature, we are rightful objects of the wrath of God. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, how he stood in our place as if he were a guilty sinner and took upon himself the sin and the guilt that we deserved, we can be delivered from the wrath that we deserved because the wrath of God that we deserved was placed upon Jesus on the cross and by faith we can receive the benefits of that transaction. Well, that brings us to the end of the chapter, but you can see the pattern pretty clearly through, right? Paul begins with just an opening in the first few verses, then he talks about how much he gives thanks, and then he gives this great uh, phrasing here in verses 2, 3, and 4, how he remembers their faith, hope, and love, but we saw each one of those produces something, right? The, The faith produces work, love produces labor, and hope produces patience. But above all that, he says, I know that that you're saved. I know that you're elect. I know that you're loved of God, and I know that you're elect of God. And then he goes through and he describes what kind of people enjoy those things. People who respond to the word of God. People who become followers of Jesus Christ. People who sound forth the word of God. And then at the very end, people who are saved from the wrath to come. This is our heritage as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to go on in the next chapter that we'll consider together next week, but I think we need to consider this and think about it for yourself. Do you have the kind of assurance that Paul spoke about before? Do you have the kind of peace and rest? Well, look at it for you. Does the word of God come to you in power? Do do you receive it with much assurance? Have you become a follower of Jesus Christ? And do you look for opportunities to spread forth that word of God wherever you can? These are aspects of a godly life, and proof of our election. I pray that the Lord will speak to each one of us about those very things in our life. So let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. We think about this great work that you did in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. Lord, we recognize that it's so valuable for us to see it because your pattern of working is still the same. You still want to produce something through the faith, hope, and love in our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would do it, that you would do it by the power and the liberty of your Holy Spirit, and that we would always receive your word as it is, the word of power and filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for all your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.